If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where we are going to get back into the flow of 1 Timothy. How would you think of yourself if someone said, what are you as a Christian? I mean, what would come to mind? You know, if you had to say, as a Christian, I am this profession or that profession, what profession would come to mind? How do you think of yourself? Would you think of yourself as a soldier, as a warrior, someone engaged in battle? If not, you should, because you are. When it comes to being a Christian, it's easy to think of yourself as being saved, as, uh, you know, not going to hell, as going to heaven, as knowing Jesus. And those things are true and those things are good. But few people think of themselves as warriors, as soldiers, as battlers, those who are fighting for a cause. You know, we like to think of ourselves as peacemakers, maybe. Um, Laborers, maybe. Servants, maybe but something less violent and combative than a soldier. The word soldier brings to mind killing, um, death, hurt, and hardship, and pain. And we would often like to think of ourselves as uh, peaceful, um, calm, uh, not battling. You know, the soldier almost sounds anti-Christian. And we think of Jesus' words uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, we would like that better. We would like peacemaker better. Because uh, it sounds less painful, less hard. But most people don't understand that peace is a gift from God. Peace is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Peace is being reconciled to the one you have offended with your sin. That is where peace begins. And peace can only be had from those who know Jesus Christ. Isaiah makes it clear that there is no peace for the wicked. There is pleasure for the wicked. There may be Worldly joy for the wicked, but there is no peace. There is no reconciliation with God. And a lot of times we have this idea that because we are to be peacemakers, that means we are to not fight and battle. But that's not what it means. What it means is, is we are to share the gospel of peace and the prince of peace with other people so they can be reconciled to God. And it is true if we read the scriptures like Philippians 4, 6, and 7, as we pray to God, we will receive the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. But know this. That peace is not peace in the absence of conflict. That peace is a peace granted to us by God in the midst of battle. And I think the church has really deluded itself into thinking it can have peace within this evil world system among men who are walking according to the prince of the power of the air. 
And for this reason, many people do not see themselves as soldiers of Christ. They don't see themselves as battling and waging war against the powers and principalities, against Satan and his demonic throng, and against men who are his dupes to do his bidding. Instead, we see ourselves as those saved, almost saved for pleasure, for deliverance here and now. Not in the future, not when we get to heaven, but we want to have it now. Jesus made an interesting statement in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. He was sending the disciples out and he was kind of giving them, I don't know if you want to call it a pep talk, but a reality talk probably would be best to describe it. And he says, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. I am going to send you out and you are going to be hated. I am going to send you out and you are going to cause division. I am going to send you out and people are going to put you to death. That's a pretty sobering commission. And he made this interesting phrase in Matthew 10.34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That is an incredible statement from one who is by definition the prince of peace. You see, we have this idea that Jesus, being the Prince of Peace, is promising us peace here and now, that is, the absence of conflict, but that couldn't be further from the truth. That will happen when Jesus comes a second time and enters into time, space, and history and puts asunder all of the evil men and Satan and his demonic throng. Then there will be peace in that kingdom, but now... We are soldiers, aliens, and strangers here on earth fighting a battle unto death. Fighting a battle for the souls of men and for the truth of God's word. And that is what God has called all of us to be. In 1 Corinthians 14.8, when Paul was addressing the issues of tongues, he said, listen, you need to make sure that if you're going to speak in a tongue... You have to have an interpreter. Because if you don't, he says, people aren't going to know what you're saying. He says, it's like a bugler who gives a bugle cry, but people don't know what it is, so they can't prepare themselves for battle. His whole point there is that, listen, we need to understand God's word so we can prepare ourselves for battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul describes his ministry as wielding the word of truth in the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. That is how Paul saw himself. As one with a weapon in this hand and a weapon in this hand, which he described as the word of truth, wielding the word of truth in the power of God, fighting a battle. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for our warfare 
are, is not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your di- obedience is complete. Paul did not say if we get in a war or if it happens that we get into the war or someday if we might or maybe or should be involved in some little skirmish. No, he says we war. We war for the truth. And we have weapons that are divinely powerful and therefore destruction of worldly philosophies and worldly thoughts and false doctrines. And in our own hearts, we take every thought as a prisoner of war, as a captive in obedience to Christ. And people of Calvary Bible Church, you need to come to grips with the fact that you are at war. You are a soldier. If you know Jesus Christ, you are a soldier of Jesus Christ. And the question you need to ask yourself is, what kind of soldier am I? What kind of soldier am I? Am I a good soldier of Jesus Christ or not? The war we are in is a war for the truth, a war for the gospel, a war for the souls of men. And as soldiers, we need to know that there is a battle and we need to know where the battle is and we need to know what we are to do in order to win this battle. And so as we turn to our text today, we come to a very key section in the book of 1 Timothy. It is a key section because in these three verses, 18 through 20 of chapter 1, Paul is going to give us a major purpose of the book, a major theme of the book, which is also the purpose of the church, which is also Timothy's purpose, which is also the purpose of a leader in general and a Christian in general. Every one of us needs to fight the good fight. And so the first thing Paul does is he addresses this issue of false teachers, starting in verse 3, and we have seen this, how he has exposed the false teachers and then refuted them. And he brings this up again in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and again in chapter three, verses three or 6, verses 3 through 5. Three times in this short book he brings up false doctrine, because this is one of the major areas that the church has always had to battle. And this is one of the reasons why Paul told Timothy to stay on at Ephesus, to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. But you see, Timothy was weak. He was weak, he was sickly, he was timid. I mean, you can imagine um, being dropped off by the Apostle Paul. And you know, you don't have a whole bunch of good commentaries. You don't have a whole big support group. You can't call up your seminary professor. You can't even call up the Apostle Paul. I mean, it takes a year to get a letter from him. And you're there, all alone, in this very hostile place, a place of just rampant paganism and immorality. And they're attacking you, and they're accusing you, and they're they're fighting against you. And not only are they coming from without, but people from your own congregation are, are teaching things and leading people astray. And it's just like, man, I need a vacation. I, I'm tired. 
I, I just need to just relax. I send some reinforcements. And there is no doubt that Paul saw what was happening in Timothy's life, and so he writes him this letter to help him not to cave in or give up, to remind him of what he is supposed to be doing, that as a soldier he is to fight the good fight. You see, a lot of Christians think that just coming to church and just filling a pew is somehow fighting the good fight. The people, that's just the beginning. You know, when you gave your life to Christ, that was like going to the recruiter's office and signing on the dotted line. And as soon as you do that, they, their whole demeanor changes. You know, I mean, they're going to take you out for steak and lobster, and they're going to tell you how cool it is and how they're going to give you all this education, and then you sign on the line. It's like, stand up, hold still, here's some shots, we're going to shave your head, go here, do this, and don't ever disobey us. We own you now. 24 hours a day, you are a soldier. And that is what happens when we come to Christ. All of a sudden, we have a new Lord, a new Master, Jesus Christ, and He tells us what to do. And we have a duty, an obligation to serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Satan would have us indulge in sin, and then pretty soon we're, we're doubting. We're fearful. We're experiencing apathy. We, we have lost our confidence. We're getting complacent. We're more interested in pleasure than, you know, I mean, come on, man, I'm working all day, you know, every day of the week, and Sunday is my time to relax. And we don't want to suffer hardship. Listen, when we assemble as a church, it's for equipping when we assemble as believers, it's for mutual edification so that we can get the battle plan, so we can get instructed, so we can get ammunition, so we can go out there and do battle. In the world, in our homes, in our jobs, in every sphere that we are in, we are doing battle. At least we should be doing battle. And that is why we need to ask ourselves, what kind of soldier am I? You see, when a person fails to engage in the battle, he is actually hindering rather than helping the cause. There will be no peace treaty, there will be no truce until Jesus Christ comes back to earth. And until that time, we're all enlisted every minute of the day to fight the good fight as soldiers. And so Paul, knowing Timothy's situation knowing that he's starting to capitulate, says this, follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now today we're just going to look at verse 18. And there's a reason for that. I wanted to establish that we are in fact at war. I hope you're convinced at that. And as I look in the church today, it amazes me. It amazes me that so many Christians seem to be oblivious to the fact that they are at war. Because they aren't worrying. 
I mean, why are you so up in arms about things? People ask me, you know, why are you so combative? Why are you so bothered about things? Well, we're at war! It's like, hello! Don't you see what's going on here? We're at war! And so I want to look at verse 18, and then I want to define some of the war that we are engaged in today, which I think some people need to be reminded of. Look at verse 18. He says this. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Here we have the command to fight. That is the one central thought, which implies two things. There is a battle, and you are in it. And this is what he says. He says, this command. The word command here is often used as a military command. It's a military term. It means to receive an order from somebody above you in rank. It is the same word, if you look in verse 5, translated instruction, where Paul says the goal of our instruction, parangelion, which means the goal of the command that he received. And Paul is saying, just as I have received this command, I am now giving it to you. And I don't want you to just know the command, I want you to obey the command. The word entrust is an interesting word too. The word entrust might be translated to deposit. It was used of money put into a, a, a vault or a, a safe place for keeping. He says, Timothy, this command I am depositing in you. I'm depositing it in you because one, it is valuable, and two, it needs to be protected and guarded. And this is why other places in the book, like in chapter 6, verse 20, he tells him to guard the truth which has been entrusted to him. This is why in 2 Timothy, he says to guard the treasure that has been given him. Why he says to retain the standard of sound words. That is the command. That is the treasure. It is the gospel of God. And some Christians today would just rather not contend for the truth. They would never not battle for the truth. Oh, they want to go to heaven and they want all the blessings that go with the truth, but they just don't want to battle for the truth. Thomas Watson said, A slothful Christian is like a lazy soldier who has a great desire for the plunder, but is loath to storm the castle. That is how a lot of people are today. And Timothy needed to fight and we need to fight. Because we're all soldiers and we're all in a war and it's not going to stop until Christ sets up his kingdom. So Paul goes on to say, look at verse 18, after he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. He says, In accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now this is an interesting statement. We don't really know exactly when this happened or how this happened. There are some hints in the book which may tell us a little bit more about what happened. If you were to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, it seems that Timothy, when he was being commissioned, was actually given a prophetic utterance describing his gifts and the ministry he was to go into. I mean, think how encouraging this would be. I know some of you right now, you have come up to me and go, you know, I need to serve, but I just don't know where. Now, wouldn't it be great to have a prophetic utterance? 
And God just come down and just say, Joe, I commission you to fold bulletins. You are the bulletin folder for Calvary Bible Church, and I want you to execute this ministry with faithfulness until you die. And then Joe could just say, Oh, baby, man, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And even if people complained about how they were folded, and even though they attacked him because there was misspelling in there, he would say, Hey, I am a bulletin folder. (laughs) And it would be great to have this, but we don't. But guess what? Timothy did. Timothy had this. And you can imagine why. Here he is in the early church in a pagan culture. Um, the church is new. He's a young man. He's weak. He's timid. And so God gives him a specific command through prophetic utterance telling him what his gifts are and what he's supposed to be doing. And in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul might be referring to this when he says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. It seems that there was this big laying on of hands, this prophetic utterance, and and he was received this gift, this spiritual gift that he was to use as an evangelist and pastor-teacher. And he says that Timothy is to be reminded of this. Why? So he would be encouraged. I mean, he says, listen, do you remember? Do you remember these uh, prophecies made concerning you? He said, Timothy, man, you're in the right spot. You're doing the right thing. You're going in the right direction. And this is good. Do not give up. And then he makes the final statement that by them, that is in accordance with them, that is these prophecies previously made concerning you, you fight the good fight. There's a similar statement if you were to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul, after telling Timothy what he must flee from and what he must pursue, says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The word fight here is a different word than in our text. The word fight here is the word agonizomai, the word we get agony from. And I bring this up just to let you know that being a Christian is not about being pleased. It's not about being pleasured. It's about agonizing. It is about fighting, laboring, toiling for the truth, for the gospel, to evangelize the lost. In the King James, our text is translated to war the good warfare. Because our word means war. It means to be in conflict, to engage in a military campaign. And he says, Timothy... I command you, just as the prophecies were previously made concerning you, that you engage in the military campaign that you were called. And it is a present tense, which means that he was continually to be in this military campaign of battle, just like all of us are to be doing. And you know what what soldiers have to go through. They eat crummy food, sometimes very little food. They're dirty. They don't get to shower. They're crawling around on their bellies. They're being shot at. They're being wounded. They're being attacked from every direction. And that is what a soldier is. And so for the remainder of our time, 
I just want to stop, and instead of going through the text, and I want to just address this. Because in my ministry, I have discovered that Christians seem to be oblivious to the battle. The ba- what does the battle look like? I mean, you know, there's not people out there with guns in your office shooting at you, hopefully. I mean, what, what battle are you talking about? I mean, we don't have a literal sword that we're literally wielding and chopping people's heads off, hopefully. So, so what does it look like? I mean, what does it look like in your life? Well, let me just give you five areas where the battle is raging. And I, and I do this because you need to understand there is a battle, you are a soldier, and where the battle is so you can fight for what is right. First, the battle is waging for the souls of men. Satan labors diligently, diligently to keep men from coming to salvation. He wants to drag as many people as he can down with him into the lake of fire. He wants people to hate God and to live in constant rebellion against God. That's what he wants, and he wants you to do nothing about it. He wants you to be scared to share your faith. He wants you to be timid about sharing the gospel. And if you do share the gospel, he wants you to cloak it in terms so people don't know what they're supposed to do. Don't ever mention sin. Don't ever mention repentance. Don't ever mention hell. Just tell them Jesus loves them. Just tell them to ask Jesus in their heart. What is that? You see, we don't want to cloak the gospel, but that's what Satan wants us to do. Jesus, in the parable of the soils, made this interesting statement. He said this in Matthew 13, 19, when interpreting the parable. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. That is an interesting statement. Jesus is saying that there are some out there who have God's word sown in their heart, but they just don't accept it. And he says it's because Satan is like a bird who snatches away the word. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now get this, in whose case the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Why? Because if they saw it, then they'd be saved. And so here we find out that Satan is working by snatching away the word, by blinding people. Many sermons have ricocheted off of hard hearts, have never even penetrated. And before they can even get any water on them, and before the word can even sprout, it's snatched up and swept clean. You know, I have had friends, and this one friend in particular, um, you know, I was able to share Christ with him, and I, I remember just unloading on him and just sharing Christ from every single angle I possibly could, every illustration I could, and just you know telling him about what it meant to be a Christian and how to come to the Lord and all of that stuff. And then about a month or two later, we were talking, and he asked me, so what does it mean to be born again? And I felt like saying, I just told you. Weren't you listening? 
And so I kept, I started to explain to him the gospel again, and it was as if he had never heard it before. It was like all brand new material. And it made me wonder, what in the world is going on here? Why doesn't he remember? It's because Satan had snatched away the word, because he had been blinded from the truth. So when you go out there and you share with somebody, and they, their eyes go sideways and they look at you like, what's wrong with you, man? You need a psychologist. I mean, come on, you're getting a little bit fanatic. When they look at you that way, you need to remember that there's something going on here beside the scenes. It's not just you and them. It is you, it is them, it is God, it is Satan, it is his demons. There is a conflict going on and Satan hates it when you share the gospel with somebody. I mean, clearly present the gospel with somebody. Why? Because that is the instrument by which all men are saved. And he knows that if that man understands the gospel, then what will happen is, is that person will be ripped from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ, that they will be transformed and renewed and slowly be morphed into the image of Christ over a period of time and become more and more godly and more and more a soldier against him and his cause. And so he doesn't want you to share. And this, people, is an area of major battle in the church today. And this tells us why we must be diligent to share the gospel. And why when people don't accept the gospel, we shouldn't be going, Oh man, what's wrong? Is my presentation wrong? Did I take them through the Romans road wrong? Did I not quote my verse right? Don't even worry about that. Because Jesus said, Many are called, but few are chosen. And when God... And his sovereignty decides to save somebody. He will grant them repentance. He will give them what they need. But don't be surprised just because many reject. We know many reject and we know why. Because there is a conflict between men and God and between Satan and God and between men and demons. There is a battle waging and it is waging for the souls of men. Second, the battle is with Believers, as Satan, demons, and fallen angels try to attack them. And usually we are attacked by deception. Satan wants to deceive you into buying a lie. He wants you to think something is true that is not true. He wants you to buy a half lie if he can't get you to buy a whole lie. A fraction of a lie. If he can just get you to just compromise on one little thing, then he can just like put a wedge in there to drive you farther from God. That's what he wants. He loves to convince believers that truth is error and error is truth. That it's just insignificant. It's only a little petty matter. I mean, come on, you're obeying God in all these other areas. I mean, this one little sin, this one little ism. I have seen people just inflamed and raging mad over different issues in the church, you know. I mean, I, I hate that color. I mean, can't we just get, you know, orange carpet? We've had this Greek carpet forever. I just want to make sure that if we get carpet, it's orange. I mean, they're just, they're really on fire for the carpet. I mean, I've seen people leave church, I kid you not, because, man, all these people are coming and the church is growing and they're wearing out our building. 
Yet these people never get mad that someone's going to hell. They never get angry about their lack of prayer, their lack of study, or their lack of service in the body. They would never give a heartbeat to that, but oh, they'll get mad over a whole bunch of insignificant, petty, worthless things that have no eternal significance at all. We need to start getting angry about what God's angry about. And we need to start battling for what God is battling for. And that is the truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10, through 10, I did a little study on deception. I found some really interesting things. Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then you know what he says right after that? Do not be deceived. And then what does he do? He lists a whole list of sins. What does that tell us? It tells us this. Satan is going to try and convince us that you can live any way you want and still get to heaven. You can engage in any sin you want and still get to heaven. And Paul says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says salvation transforms a person's life and changes them so they are no longer that kind of person. And that's why he says in the very next verse, and such were some of you, but you have been washed and you have been cleansed. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 33, Paul said this, do not be deceived. Now, whenever he says that, we need to say, okay, What are we supposed to not be deceived about? Do not be deceived. Now get this. Bad company corrupts good morals. I want you to know, I know a lot of people who say, Oh, yeah, well, you know, I know I'm hanging out with these carnal individuals. I know this person isn't walking with the Lord very right. I know they got a whole bunch of sin in their life. But, hey, we're good friends. You shouldn't be. Why? Because bad company corrupts good morals. I mean, let's just say you go down to the hospital. There's somebody in the bed there dying of AIDS. Now, you say, okay, we'll tell you what. I'll give you a pint of my blood. You give me a pint of your blood. And then what will happen is, is we'll see if my pint makes you healthy and if your pint makes me sick. Now, how many people you think are going to be healthy because of your healthy pint of blood? How many people do you think will catch your health. I've never heard of it happening. And if you hang around people who are wicked, if you hang around people who are in rebellion against God, if you hang around people who are in sin, they will corrupt you. And so Paul says, do not be deceived, which tells us that Satan is going to try and say, hey, listen, you can hang around people like that. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to be fine. I mean, come on, you got to evangelize them. I know, sitting in that bar and drinking a few beers is, you know, I mean, the Bible doesn't say don't drink. I mean, you can, I mean, you got to build relationships, you know. You need to hang with them. You need to do their thing. And instead, we should just go to the scriptures and find out that do not participate in their evil deeds, but rather expose them, Ephesians 5. So we know that, that Satan will try to deceive us in this bad company, by getting us to accept sin and to hang around people who are in sin, knowing that it will infect us with their wickedness. Then in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said this. 
He said, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Then he says this, this is just fascinating. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. If that ever doesn't describe the church today, I don't know what does. And people come in and just say, oh yeah, well, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to never mention hell, we're going to never mention sin, and we're only going to tell them about Jesus' love. People, that is a different gospel. That is not the gospel that Jesus preached, or John the Baptist preached, or the apostles preached, or is found anywhere in, in the New Testament. A gospel that is just stripped of judgment, of sin. That is why we need saved. That is the reason why you need saved. Sure, the love part is important, but that is not the gospel. That is not all the gospel is. And the church is so quick to jump on the fad wagon to accept every little, uh, you know, nuance of, uh, you know, method and motives and lifestyle and, um, and philosophy. And they do this because, man, this is going to help the church. And, you know, whenever you say, now, where do you see that? Well, let's not be a legalist. Well, where do you see that? Well, let me tell you some statistics. That's what they usually support it by. They're statistics. You know, so-and-so did this report, and their statistics showed who cares? Who cares what the statistics show? We only care about what God says, and we need to be like the Bereans to check everything. The scriptures need to be first and last in everything we do. We go to the scriptures to find out what to do, how to do it, and then we check it to make sure that what we're doing is according to the scriptures. We don't come and just say, well, yeah, I'm going to try something and throw it out there, and, and uh, maybe someday I'll get around to looking at the scriptures to see if it jives. No. We go to the Word of God first and last. And Satan wants us to reject the simplicity of purity of devotion to Christ. You know, it's not that complicated what the Scriptures say. Preach the truth, teach the truth, obey the truth, evangelize the lost, teaching them to observe all they commanded you. But instead, the church wants to say, well, we're going to take preaching, man. That's outdated. And we're going to replace it with music. We're going to replace it with drama. We're going to replace it with events. We're going to take evangelism and turn it into a church thing. We don't want you guys to go out and evangelize. Just bring them in here. I'll evangelize them. I mean, it's not your responsibility anymore. It's, it's my responsibility. And instead of saying, no, it is your responsibility, you go out and you witness to them and you lead them to the Lord and then you bring them once they're saved. We've got this whole thing backwards. I mean, just look at the New Testament and see what they did. It's crystal clear. But what has happened is by small degrees, by statistics, by... Smart people with PhDs writing books, we somehow get led astray by simplicity of devotion to Christ. I mean, think about this. When he says, like the serpent deceived Eve, how did the serpent deceive Eve? Indeed, has God said that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He knew God didn't say that. God said, don't eat from the one tree. And then Eve replies, oh, he said that we can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or touch it. 
Did God say that? No. Now, all of a sudden, Eve is saying something that wasn't quite said, and Satan is saying something that wasn't quite said, and you have two people saying things that aren't quite right. And then, Satan just flat out lies to Eve and says, Hey, oh, I just want you to know, you won't die. You won't die. And he, then, he, then he kind of basically takes a shot at the character of God. You know, God is basically jealous. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you're going to be so awesome. This is going to be so cool. This is going to be so good for you. You're going to be like God. And I, you know, I'm not sure, but I don't think he wants the competition. But you aren't going to die. And look at it. It looks so yummy. I mean, come on. You've eaten all this other fruit. What's wrong with it? Go ahead, touch it. He touches it. Didn't die. Must be right, maybe, huh? Did some experience. That didn't kill me. And the text read, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And notice, that simple command... Don't eat from the tree unless you die is never mentioned. That was the only command they had. They could do anything they wanted but eat of the tree lest they die. And what happens? Well, because Satan was smart and because after all it did look good and after all if it was to make somebody desirable and after all and you have all this rationalization and pretty soon... The whole human race is plunged into sin because of this one act. In the church today, we need to realize we are waging a war for the truth. In order to combat this, we need to go to the scriptures first and last and examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is good. Third, Satan attacks God by attacking the family. And I don't even need to say anything about this. Everybody knows this is true. The family is under incredible attack today. In 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about husbands fulfilling the duty of the wives, and the wives of the husband, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan wants to destroy marriages. He wants to destroy families. He loves divorce. He loves conflict. He loves it when parents do not train their children. Yet what do we see today? Even though the scriptures are pretty clear, you know, marry one woman, love her, be devoted to her, be a servant leader to her, love her like Christ loved the church, until death do you part. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Even though that is crystal clear, what do we see in the church today? A divorce rate that is identical to the world. People, that shouldn't be that way. That should not be that way. There's something wrong. There's something broken. There is a deception going on. The church seems to be oblivious to something that is destroying marriages. What is it? It is worldliness. It is pumping in a bunch of trash. It is misplaced priorities, misplaced commitments. It's a whole slug of things. And we need to be realizing that Satan wants to destroy our families. 
you know, the scriptures say, you know, train up a child in the way they should go so they won't depart from that way. You know, bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Instruct them when you lie down, when you rise up, when you're along the way. And so you go to most people and say, are you doing that? And they say, no. Simple command. Granted, hard to do. Simple command. People, that is where the war is. It is a war to say, I'm not going to go golfing. I'm going to spend time with my kids. I'm not going to watch TV. I'm going to read my my kids a Bible story. I'm not going to do these things. I am going to do the thing that God calls me to do with my family, which is raise up a godly generation. Many parents have left the moral training of their children to TV and radio and media and even the church, but it is their responsibility. The Bible is clear and straightforward about what needs to be done in this area, and we just need to do it and quit thinking that, oh, it's okay if we don't. It's not okay. This is where the war is. That's what we have to battle for, to be disciplined, to have good marriages, to love our children, to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Fourth, there is a battle for sound doctrine. I've already mentioned this. We know that in the last days, Paul says that teachers will be deceiving and being deceived and they will proceed from bad to worse. That's not good. Bad to worse. That is a bad estimation. I have seen it happen over and over again. For instance, people will start to base their theology on experience and three years down the road they're just flamed out of the ministry. Somebody will say, well, yeah, I don't know if I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And a couple years later, they're just doing wacko stuff. They just compromise on one major area and then flame out in the ministry. What has the church done about this? The church has said, well, hey, man, we need to tolerate this. We need to make sure that um, we aren't divisive or unloving now. Come, this is a peace place. This is a place where we need to go and we need to, you know, coddle each other and let's not be attacking each other. Let's not be pulling out the sword of the Spirit. Let's not pull out the weapons of our warfare. Let's keep them sheathed. Let's just lay down the weapons. Let's just let Satan overtake us and kill our church. And many people have. You can go around pretty much any big city in America and find very large, empty church buildings that used to have great preachers and teachers and congregations in them, but which now are dead. The fifth and final area of the battle that does not come directly from Satan, but which Satan knows is in us and tries to use it to his advantage is our flesh, our sinful nature, our desire to please our own self. I mean, if there was ever one, if I had to pick any of these five, this is the one that I think we need to focus on the more, the most. We just have this desire just to just we've just got to be pleased. We've got to have things our way. It's got to be comfy according to us. I mean, we don't want to have to sacrifice. We don't want to have to have hardship. We don't want to have to hurt. I mean, come on. I'm I'm a Christian, man. I'm in this thing for pleasure. That's what a lot of people think. I mean, you can imagine a soldier being out there in battle going, I've got a hangnail. My, my, My uniform's dirty. I need to go to the cleaners. 
man, I can't shoot. They're shooting at me. Just let me sweep out the bunker. I don't want to get out there in the battle. I could get hurt. It's like, man, I, I, I need to go back. I need a pizza. And see, this is how the church is. I mean, that's what happens when we're, we're, we're fighting for things that are just insignificant. We want to be pleased. And Paul describes it in Romans 7 as this war waging in his members. I mean, we all know this is true. We all know that we need to read our Bibles. And yet, we have all struggled with reading our Bibles. We all know that we need to pray. A lot. And we all know how hard that is. I mean, that's not a hard command, is it? Pray, read your Bible. I mean, those are like the two ultimate guilt producers in every Christian. You just want to humble somebody, say, hey, how's your prayer life? (laughs) Why? Why is it so hard, even though the command is so simple? Because there is a battle, people, and this is what we must be fighting for. When you find a very simple truth that's repeated over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, and you have a hard time doing that truth, oh man, put your resources in that area. Because you know that area is the most crucial area. Otherwise, there wouldn't be such incredible opposition to it in your life. Your flesh goes, oh man, don't do that. That's, that's no good. James 1, 14 through 16 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The devil didn't make you do it. It's not your parents' fault. It's not because they didn't raise you right. It's not because you were abused. It's not because you had a dad who was an alcoholic. It's not because your boss is mean. They didn't make you sin. You made you sin. And you always make you sin. And we need to take responsibility that we are tempted by our own lust. That we can't pawn that off on someone else, but our flesh just says it couldn't be us. I mean, if you're raised kids, it amazes me how often, you know, that statement, oh, um, the woman you gave me, it was the serpent. Um, You know, (laughs) he deceived me and you created him. And we see this all the time in our kids. I say, hey, Mark, did you do this? Let's go, Leah. Leah, did you do this? Nate. Here's um, go. Well, my homework. Um, you know, this is always something other than that, and we want to protect ourselves. And we need to understand that in your body, in your flesh, there is a sin nature, and it is waging war. And you need to wage war against it. Don't just give into it. James said in James 4.1, the wages that, that sin wages in our members, it desires to be pleased. In, sec, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter describes fleshly lust as waging war against the soul. People, that is where the battle is. I mean, that is that with you. Even if Satan right now is cast into the abyss, you would still be battling your flesh. Every day. And so we need to make sure, as a church, that we have the mindset of a soldier. That we see that the issue is truth. 
obedience to that truth, and the evangelization of the lost, that we are in submission to a a commander, Jesus Christ, and we are duty-bound to obey him in everything, that we can never take leave, that we are 24 hours a day in the service of our Lord, and that he will try to keep us from evangelizing people, he will try to deceive us into accepting things that are false, he will try to destroy our families, he will try to infiltrate the church with unhealthy doctrine, And he will try to appeal to our sin natures knowing that they are so strong and we have to battle with them every day. Martin Luther wrote in his classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, these words, which we will close with. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph. Through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for saving us. And Father, may we be reminded today that you have saved us to fight a battle. A battle for truth, a battle for the souls of men. And Father, we just pray that we would be reminded that though Satan is fierce, and though his demons are many, and though we cannot see them for they are invisible enemies, Yet they are present. They are present in this world and we are commanded to fight against them with the truth of your word, with weapons that are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Father, we pray that we would take your truth up in the right hand and the left and that we would wield with all our might obedience and truth that we might give you glory. Father, I pray that all of us would leave here with a desire to share your word with other people, knowing that your word is living and active and itself is the sword, which will divide people, which will cause conflict, but Father, which will also be used by you to bring men and women and children who don't know you to repentance that you might receive more glory. Father, we thank you that you have called us into service. Help us to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Amen.